You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Dear Lord, thanks so much for this day. Thank you for bringing us together. Lord, I thank you for the book of Jonah and the gift of preserving it. Lord, I pray now that you would speak through me. Pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to see you more clearly, Lord, and that this time would be used for your glory. And I ask these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so again, welcome. We are finishing up Jonah, Jonah 4. Even if you haven't been here the past three weeks, I hope that today is edifying for you. And we're going to do a recap before we get started, just because a lot has happened in the past three weeks in the life of Jonah. So before before we dive into Jonah 4, let's do like a quick Reader's Digest of Jonah 1 through 3. Okay, so what's been going on in Jonah's life? And keep in mind that after all that Jonah has been through, all the disobedience, all the idolatry, all the self-righteousness... The Lord is still graciously and patiently pursuing Jonah, even to the end of Jonah 4, and even to the end of Jonah's life. So, what has happened to Jonah up to this point? Here you go. All right, so where we open up, the Lord comes to Jonah, his prophet, and he asks Jonah to go to the great and terrible city of Nineveh to warn them um, and to preach against their destruction. And then what does Jonah do? He goes the exact opposite direction. He flees from the presence of the Lord, thinking that that's even a thing that he can do. And as we know, things don't turn out so well for Jonah. He boards a ship to Tarshish, which is basically as far away from Nineveh as one could go at that time. And while he's on the ship, a great storm comes. And the sailors on the ship are asking, whose God is responsible for this? And Jonah fesses up. He says, it's probably mine. I'm the one running from the Lord. You can throw me overboard. Things will be taken care of. And that's what happens. They throw Jonah into the sea. The storm immediately stops. And what we see are all the seamen on the boat um, turn to the Lord. So that's the first kind of miraculous thing we see the Lord doing in Jonah 1. Then, as we know, the whale comes. The Lord appoints a fish to swallow up Jonah. And while in the belly of the fish, Jonah prays a really beautiful prayer to the Lord for salvation. The Lord graciously answers that prayer. The fish spits up Jonah on dry land. And there, the Lord asks Jonah again, go to Nineveh and preach and prophesy. This time, Jonah is actually obedient. And as we learned from Sam and Warren last week, uh, nothing short of a miracle happens in Nineveh. The wicked, atrocious, barbaric Ninevites repent and are saved. And so that's where we're picking up today in Jonah 4. And so Jonah's preaching has been successful. And you would think that Jonah would be rejoicing and delighting and wondering at the great work the Lord has done in Nineveh. But alas, I think we know Jonah well enough now to know that that is not what's going to happen. So I'm going to read Jonah 4 for us and then we will begin. Okay, Jonah 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. 
Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? The word of the Lord. I'm going to go ahead and spoil that I, I can't answer what happens to the cattle. Hopefully you learned something, but that is not what you're going to learn today about the cattle in Nineveh. But let's jump into Jonah 4. And the way I want to frame this class is very simple. And it can basically be summed up with the subtitle of the chapter, Jonah's Anger and the Lord's Compassion. So we're going to look at Jonah and the way he reacts and responds. And then we're going to look at God and the way he reacts and responds specifically how the Lord responds to Jonah's just complete childlike and honestly hilarious behavior. Um, all right, Jonah, starting with Jonah. Two big things I think we see in Jonah's behavior, and that is idolatry and self-righteousness. And ultimately, we're going to see that these things, these are things that we in Birmingham in 2019 continue to struggle with. So, like I said, an amazing thing has just happened in Nineveh. A whole people group of barbaric, wicked people. Sam and Warren did a really good job of providing like brutal detail about just how horrible the Ninevites were last week. Um, these people have been brought to the Lord. That is miraculous. And where do we find Jonah in chapter 4 having a major pity party for himself? He is angry. Not only is he not glad about the salvation the Ninevites have received, he is stewing. He is angry. And so this is not what this is not the way we would react we would expect a prophet to react if their preaching had just been successful. So I think we now need to ask the question, what is behind all of Jonah's anger? What does that reveal about the realities of his heart? Why on earth is Jonah at a place now where he wants to die rather than live in a world where salvation comes to people as wicked as the Ninevites? And I think one of the first answers why Jonah is angry it's because the very thing he was afraid would happen has happened. Because let's remember, too, that Nineveh and Israel, Jonah's country, were great enemies. And so Jonah is now really, really angry about the fact that the very enemies of his country have been brought to the Lord. Um, Nineveh was a major threat to Israel's security and well-being. And so now Jonah feels kind of personally attacked and offended that God would spare his enemies. And that's kind of why I think we see Jonah almost like mockingly quoting God back to God in verse 2 when he says, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And I think basically what Jonah's saying here is, God, you went too far with the whole compassion thing here. You did exactly what I knew you would do if I went to Nineveh because you are a God who is compassionate. And I can't really handle that right now in the face of my enemies. Um, and, you know, he even goes as far, too, as to say, that's why I didn't answer to you in the first place, because you did exactly what is in your nature to do. And Jonah is really, really angry about that. So this this anger, I think, is kind of born out of this idolatrous patriotism and love for Jonah's country. He is prioritizing his own well-being, his own security over the Lord and the miraculous work that he has done in Nineveh. And I think we see this, too, even more at play with the whole plant incident. And this is just it's so fascinating to me. The, the beautiful picture of the idolatry of Jonah's heart that this plant gives us. Uh, I think it's worth noting, too, that in like just three or four verses, Jonah moves from exceedingly displeased and exceedingly angry to exceedingly glad once the Lord provides safety and security through Jonah with the provision of this plant. Basically, when things are going Jonah's way, when his country is secure, when he has shade and provision and he's nice and comfortable during his own little pity party, then Jonah's fine. He's exceedingly glad. But then when things don't go Jonah's way, when Nineveh is spared and Israel's security is threatened, when God appoints the plant to be taken away, he's back to being this like melodramatic preteen again and wants to die. Um, and so this is what our idols do to us, too. When our foundation is more in what God can do for us rather than God himself, we, too, experience these great mood swings um, because our foundation is in insecure things and not in God himself. Okay, so that's the first thing I think we see in Jonah is idolatry. Secondly, we've got this kind of like self-righteousness going on that I think also leads to his anger. And it's a self-righteousness that blinds him to the idea that Jonah is just as undeserving of the Lord's mercy as the Ninevites are. Jonah cannot, he fails to recognize that he too does not deserve the salvation the Lord has given him. Because I think Jonah can understand that, yeah, God would be merciful to me. I'm a pretty good guy. Sure, I've done some bad things here and there, but it makes sense that God could could save me. And it does not make sense that God could be gracious to these sinful, wicked Ninevites. His, his vocabulary of the Lord's mercy is just kind of skewed. And so I think a, a couple New Testament characters that, that Jonah reminds me of here. The unforgiving servant. Anyone remember that parable in Matthew 18? Basically, um, a servant is spared a massive debt that he owed the king, only to then turn around and throw his servant in jail over a small sum of money. Another one, older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, Luke 15, he throws another pity party. Remember when his younger brother returns home and is thrown a big party? The older brother is like, I'm not, are you kidding? You're going to give him a party and me nothing? Um, I think we see similar, similar characteristics in Jonah here. And, I mean, I have to cut Jonah some slack. This makes a little bit of sense, right? You know, Jonah had witnessed firsthand how barbaric the Ninevites were against his own people. And so it makes sense that Jonah is is kind of 
confounded by what God has done. And we, I mean, it's not a bad thing, too, that Jonah cares about the safety of his country. But what we see is that Jonah is still unwilling to accept that he is just as undeserving of God's mercy as these Ninevites. And Jonah cannot believe that God would be merciful to the point of even saving those wicked people. And I think if we're being honest, this is a place where we go to. We love to use this language of fair and deserving. And that's why I titled this class Salvation in the Unfair Grace of God. Because, boy, how many times a day do I say something like, Oh, it has been a terrible day. I deserve some ice cream. Or, I worked way harder than her. She does not deserve that promotion. Or, just simply, when I'm at my worst, that's not fair. We, I use language like that all the time, and I'm sure you guys do too. Um, but this, this language of fair and deserving, not in God's vocabulary, especially when it comes to the way he extends his mercy. And that's what God is so graciously and patiently and tenderly trying to show Jonah here, I think, that when it comes to who deserves mercy, the playing field is totally even. You can look all throughout Scripture and see that before Christ, there is language to describe us like dead, blind, children of wrath, disobedient, fallen short, without hope. So really, um, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, if we really got what we deserved, none of us would be here because we would have fallen under the wrath of a totally holy and just God. Um, but God in his mercy um, paved another way, and we're going to talk about what that way is later. Okay, so I've really been going hard on Jonah, I've really been picking on him. Let's talk about the way we see God at work in this chapter. And just, uh, I think, kind of the way I imagine this whole scene playing out is like Jonah is a toddler who is just stewing in the corner, um, causing a big ruckus, and his parent just comes and really patiently and tenderly sits down beside him and is like, hey, let's talk this out. So the first thing we see God doing is entering into this kind of gentle questioning. And you know how we sing at Advent about how God is our wonderful counselor? Um, I think that's kind of the way we see God acting now. He's not reprimanding Jonah for his childlike anger. He's not, um, he's not trying to deny the fact that Jonah is angry because Jonah is legitimately angry. You cannot deny that that's the reality of his emotions. But instead, he kind of poses these questions that try to get to the root of Jonah's anger. And I love, I love the simple way the Lord says it. Do you do well to be angry? You know, Jonah, is this really the most effective way you could be responding right now? Is this, is this the best choice you could make for yourself? And even when Jonah responds childishly again and goes even further outside of the city and just moves his pity party to another location, God continues to graciously pursue and provide for Jonah, just as he's been doing since chapter 1 of this book. So that's kind of the first characteristic of God we see, this tender, gracious, counselor, parent figure. And then let's talk about how God deals with the plant, Jonah's idol. So in kindness, the Lord provided the plant. It was a plant that, you know, made Jonah comfortable, provided shade. And then also in kindness, the Lord took that plant away. So what is God doing there? And I think simply God is exposing the idols of Jonah's heart 
and removing them, kind of performing a gentle heart surgery on Jonah to bring Jonah closer to himself. And this is how the Lord works in our life, too. I'm sure we've all had experiences where we have loved something a whole lot and it's been taken away from us. Maybe even like Jonah um, in a really quick moment. And that makes us mad and sad and disappointed. But usually what's going on there is that that's God um, graciously stripping us of our idols to bring us back to himself. Because God knows that that when our foundation are, is in God rather than what God can do for us, that is where we find our most fulfillment. And so um, I, I came across this actually when preparing for this class, and I, this is one of my favorite hymns, and I had no idea that it had a reference to Jonah 4 in it. So this is, it's on your handout. Um, this is I Ask the Lord by John Newton, the famous hymnist. And it's a song about sanctification and growing in faith. And I couldn't find the date, but the language suggests that it is very old. Um, okay, so first stanza. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. A couple of lines later. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, crushed all my gourds and laid me low. So there's that direct reference. We don't know what kind of plant it was that was growing outside of Nineveh at the time, but here John Newton has depicted it as a gourd, like a pumpkin or something. And then the last stanza I love. This is God talking now. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. Isn't that awesome? The whole hymn is worth listening to. So this is what God's doing. He's crushing Jonah's gourds. He's taking away the things that he was delighting in more than God so that he can be led to deeper fulfillment and joy in the Lord. Um, And just like Jonah, God does not allow us to stay where where we are. He takes away our idols um, to bring us closer to himself. All right, lastly, in Jonah 4, I think we see where God's heart is, where where the root of his compassion lies. And I think the answer for that is found in the last the last line of the book. The great, um, should I not pity, city, pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. This, I think, is the Lord reminding us that that's where the heart, that's where the Lord's heart is for. Um, anytime we see this language of not knowing your right hand from your left, it's another way of just describing spiritual blindness and having no, no moral compass. Um, and that's who the Lord moves towards. And what Jonah can't see, though, is that he is in this camp, right? He is right there with the Ninevites in terms of not knowing his right hand from his left. And we, too, are right there with him today. Um, you know, Jonah's sin manifests itself more in disobedience and idolatry and self-righteousness, but in Christ's eye, or in God's eyes, right here in Jonah, that's all the same. Um, and so, yeah, this is, oh, another word in verse 11, another, another kind of cool word thing is that the Lord pity, or the word pity, should I not pity Nineveh, can also be translated as compassion. So God's saying, I'm a God who has compassion on wicked, barbaric people like the Ninevites. 
and I'm a God who has compassion on you, Jonah, even when you cannot recognize it. And so now that we're in verse 11, let's address the fact that we are left with a question, right? Jonah ends in such a weird way. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Um, And so I don't think this is a mistake. I don't think the end of Jonah got lost at sea. I think that the Lord knows what he's doing by leaving us with this question. And I think anytime we see an unanswered question in the Bible, it's a question we too should be asking ourselves. Should God pity Nineveh? And if so, how? And, you know, maybe you too, along with Jonah, have struggled to kind of wonder the same thing. Like, how is it that God can be merciful enough to even save people like the Ninevites? To even save people that are as childish and disobedient as Jonah? And to even save people who are as wicked and sinful as me and you? Um, And so this also leaves us with the question of that I think Jonah wrestles with. Is God fully merciful or is he fully just? Is he a God who can be completely loving or is he a God who is so holy that he can't bear to see evil go unpunished? And the answer, as we probably know by now, is yes. God is a God of mercy. He is a God who has compassion on people who do not know their right hand from their left. But he's also a God of justice. God's perfect holiness means that he cannot allow evil to be to go unpunished. You know, he is not indifferent to the ways in which Nineveh has wronged Israel. He's not indifferent to evil that we see in the world. And so, how then can the atrocities of the Ninevites go overlooked after they have repented? How is it that God can extend mercy to them? And the answer, as is in all good Sunday school classes, is because of Jesus. Looking forward to the New Testament, when Jesus comes in, and specifically the cross, we are reminded that the punishment that Jesus faced on the cross was him facing the wrath that we all deserve. That is God himself in human flesh taking on the punishment that wicked sinners like the Ninevites, like Jonah, like you and me deserve. Um, That's what the cross reminds us of. Paul talks about in Romans 8 how Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. And that means that you and I and people like the Ninevites can indeed receive the mercy of a perfectly holy God. Um, And so we're left back to the question, should God pity Nineveh? Should he pity Jonah? Should he pity us? And I think if we take the cross and Jesus out of the equation, the answer is No, Um, but because of Jesus, we can be assured that God has indeed extended compassion to his people. The cross assures us that God is a God full of mercy, and he's also a God who is perfectly just and who placed all the punishment that we deserve on Jesus. And uh, no one, I think, sums it better than, again, the Apostle Paul in Romans 3. This is what he says, For there is no distinction... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. 
It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so what God, I think, is trying to show Jonah and what he's trying to show us is that when it comes to deserving, that is out of the question of God's mercy. Um, God is a God who extends mercy on those who do not deserve it, which is you and which is me and which is Nineveh and which is Jonah. And that because grace is free by nature, there's nothing that we could have done to earn or deserve it. And it is really, really unfair. We are treated so unfairly by God, and, but we are treated with mercy and compassion because of the cross. Um, okay, I now want to just touch on a few application points, and then we'll hopefully have time for maybe one or two questions at the end. All right, first thing I think, we've talked about idolatry a lot. Just, I think, moving forward with our daily lives in 2019, a really wonderful and fruitful practice, I think, in our walks with the Lord is a continual examination of our idols. Because, as Jonah shows us, our idols lead us to lives that are full of mood swings, you know, um, and we begin to delight in things that are not Christ um, and that keep us from Him. And this is not me, this is Tim Keller, but I find it really, really helpful. A very effective and simple way to think about what maybe some idols in your life are, or to just ask yourself, what makes me really angry? What makes me really disappointed? You know, maybe it's getting a bad grade. Your your idol might be a grade. If you get really, really angry when you study hard and still don't get a bad grade. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it is your work. Um, another good question is, what do I fear the most? What do I worry being taken away from me so much that it drives me to anxiety and fear? That could also be an indicator of an idol. Um, another, and you know, once the Lord is gracious enough to reveal our idols, he leads us to a place of repentance. And that's just kind of the second point of application. The Lord is a God who will answer these prayers. Lord, please reveal the idols of my heart. And once he does that, we can turn to him in repentance. And we can be assured that once we do, we, just like the Ninevites in chapter 3, will be shown mercy and compassion. You know, and uh, again, I go back to this great hymn. Um, it allows us to break our schemes of earthly joy so that we may find our all in Christ. And then just lastly, this is again how Tim Keller ends his book on Jonah. So I'm not clever enough to think of this, but... It's tempting to ask this question, what, what happened to Jonah? We don't know. Jonah's never mentioned again in the Bible, as far as I know. And we, like we said at the onset of this whole series, we don't even know who wrote the book of Jonah. But it is tempting to think, okay, how do we know the kind of like inward thoughts that we see expressed in Jonah? How do we know what Jonah prayed from the belly of the whale when Presumably, no one else was there. And so, a possible hypothesis is that Jonah went on to tell the story of the Lord's wonderful work in his life. And that he was a man that was transformed by God so much so that he said, Look, let me tell you about how horribly I screwed up and let me tell you about how graciously God has redeemed me. So, that's just some food for thought as we finish up Jonah. Um, and, you know, maybe in heaven we can ask Jonah himself, what happened to you and did you write this book? 
So that is that is what I have for us in Jonah 4. Um, let me pray, and then if anyone has any questions or final thoughts on this book, we can open it up to that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your servant Jonah, and we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, God, that through it we see the true character of who you, of who you are, a God who is compassionate and merciful, and a God who can save um, even the worst of repentant sinners, Lord. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this series. And we pray, Lord, that the things that you have shown us today would stay with us throughout this week and throughout the remainder of our lives, Lord. And we pray especially, God, that you would break us of our idols and turn us to a deeper faith in you. Forgive us of our self-righteousness and our propensity to think that we deserve things that we do not. Lord, again, thank you for your son and for the cross and for um, the, the fellowship that we have enjoyed together through this class. And I ask these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.